As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have given to us uh, this, which is the very word of God. And I pray that I, that we, Give it the weight it deserves and that we would listen to it because it is the word of God. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us then not only to understand but also to believe that we might live this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 12, and then I'm also going to be reading verses 13 through 15 in chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that... The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 2 and verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, we finished, as of a couple of weeks ago, I suppose, Paul's first letter to this church in Thessalonica, and now starting the second one, it seems right to do that. Now, if you read through 1 Thessalonians and if you read through 2 Thessalonians, you might think that the reason that Paul wrote to this church 
was to teach them about the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus is mentioned, at least as we have it laid out, in every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians, except Second Thessalonians chapter 3, the very last one. So it's, it's discussed over and over again. In fact, there's great portions of, the, of these letters given over to a discussion of the second coming of Jesus. In First Thessalonians, uh, he talks about it briefly, mentions it in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, chapter 3, chapter 4 has a number of uh, verses, a whole passage about it. Chapter 5 begins, for so, so many verses, 12 verses of chapter 5 deals with this uh, second coming of Jesus. Then, of course, here I read of it in, in chapter uh, 1 and, and uh, uh, verse uh, 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Uh, chapter 2 is, is, is a long uh, piece concerning the second coming of Jesus. It's a rather famous one, the opening verses of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He starts out saying, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. And then he goes on to speak of this man of lawlessness who's being restrained right now, so he's not in the scene. Some name him the Antichrist. And then he speaks of this restraint upon him and how a day will come when that restraint will be loosened. And he says, You know this restraint, even though I I have no clue. But anyway, uh, they do. And, uh, and then he, he says that God will bring a, a strong delusion on those who refuse to believe. So he speaks a great deal about the second coming of Jesus. But that's not why he wrote. He wrote to them, talking about the second coming of Jesus, to give them hope. And the reason he wishes to give them hope is because he's speaking to them about a great New Testament theme. It's one really that we're occupied with all the time. And he, he lays this out in this second passage that I read this morning from chapter 2, verse 13. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. You see, when Paul thinks of Christians, when Paul thinks of believers in Christ, his knee-jerk reaction that's a cute little prayer pun, by the way, just in case you obviously missed it. But his knee-jerk reaction is to give thanks. When he thinks of other Christians, his, his reaction is to pray and to give thanks to God. Now, the reason he does that is because he realizes that conversion is an act of God, really. To bring a person to conversion is an act of God. And so he doesn't give them thanks or he doesn't thank Christians for believing. He thanks God that they do believe, you see. And so if you're a Christian, you say, I've never seen a miracle, look in the mirror. It's a miracle in the sense that it's something making a Christian that only God can do. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, what's happened to them is they've moved from, we've moved from death to life. Life has been breathed upon us, spiritual, eternal life. Very much the same, if you will. We've used this illustration before, this biblical illustration of Lazarus being raised from the dead. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus was physically dead. But the miracle of the moment was that from the voice, the call of Jesus upon Lazarus, he was given life. Now, when Lazarus came forth, I don't think anybody said to Lazarus, way to go. 
thanks for coming out of the tomb. Everyone turned and marveled at Jesus. And so you see Paul's knee-jerk reaction, our prayerful reaction, when we think of being a Christian, when we consider the fact that others are Christians, should be to give thanks. So he says, we ought always, in other words, this is right to do. We'll come across this again in the first chapter. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. Now, all of that for them is past tense. The Father chose them before the foundations of the world, right? Sent Jesus to die for them and sent the Spirit to come and sanctify them. That sanctification there is to set them apart, to give them new life so that they could believe. So that's all past tense. The gospel came to them and it had its full effect. Holy Spirit brought the full effect and they believed this gospel, past tense. And here's what's to come. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what an expression. He says you're going to obtain, get, share in the glory of the glorious Jesus. When he returns, he says, what you'll share in is the life, the glory of Jesus you will have his, the inheritance that he has for you. You'll live eternally with him. You'll reflect him. Thus, you'll be completely, perfectly conformed to his image. You'll share in the glory of Christ. That in its fullness is to come. We always see glimpses, but that in its fullness is to come. During Advent, we say this, Wonderful little expression. At least I think it's a wonderful little expression. At the end of our worship services on the four Sundays of Advent, we say, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. The theme of Second Thessalonians is the space between come and Christ. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. It's living in between his first and second coming. That's what this is about. He's teaching us how we're to live now in light of the fact that Christ has come and we have believed and we have been saved and the fact that Christ is coming again. Oh, great, but how do we live now? And that's what he's going to talk about. And there's a word that he uses, a number of words, but they're all related to one word that he uses to describe this time period between the first and second coming of Christ, between what has happened in us and what is to happen when Christ returns. Notice verse 15. He says, so then, that is because you've been saved and because Christ is coming back, coming back so you can obtain the glory of Christ, so then, brothers, stand firm... And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. That is to say, Paul's saying, listen, now what you're to do, now that you've been saved and you're waiting for Christ to come, stand fast. Don't give up. The theological word is persevere. Continue on, you see. To continue to persevere in the faith. And so he's writing to them. 
I'm saying you have hope because Christ is returning. So now, continue to persevere. And notice how he describes their perseverance. In chapter 1, verse 3, again, he says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of our God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you're enduring. You see, when he speaks to them about persevering, he's not saying, what I'm happy about is that you're just hanging on. You know, you know that there was an old poster when I was, a, I don't know how old I was, sometime in my past. There was a poster, it was of a cat of all things, and this cat was hanging from a ledge just by its nails. That's not perseverance. Now, it feels like it sometimes. But that's not what Paul means when he speaks of persevering. Now, you see, when he writes to them, he has cause for concern. At least he thinks he has cause for concern, and thus he has cause for concern. And the concern is that this is a very young church. When Paul blew through Thessalonica and planted the church, he was only there for four or five weeks. And everything changed in the lives of these people. So much so that the city, the culture, turned against them. And they began to suffer this persecution. Not only that, there were false teachers. There were teachers saying that the second coming of Jesus has already happened. In other words, that they had already obtained the glory of Christ. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? To think this is it? Really? And so Paul looked at these young believers and he said, Okay, I need to, I need to write you another letter to help you to continue to keep the faith, to continue to persevere. So you're not just hanging on, but rather for Paul... Perseverance was to flourish, really, to grow in faith and to grow in love and to grow in hope. That's his sense of perseverance. Perseverance in the scripture is important. You remember what Jesus said. When Jesus was talking about all the difficulties that would come at the end, Jesus said, remember this, that the, he who perseveres to the end, he who endures to the end, will be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, this isn't for the faint-hearted. This isn't for those who, who are going to leave. This is for those who are going to continue on even when difficult times come. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he writes this, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, sinners as we were, he is now reconciled reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he saved you for the purpose of presenting us, believers, to his Father, holy and blameless. And then he says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's saying it's about enduring. It's about persevering. It's about continuing on. So he's writing them 
to give them hope, to enable them to be able, if you will, to persevere uh, to the end. For you see, this persecution that they're suffering is a very difficult one. It's one thing to be persecuted by a faceless government. It's another thing to be persecuted by your family and by your friends and by your neighbors. You see, in Thessalonica, it was, it was their neighbors, it was their, their friends that came out and, and were against them. You see, when the gospel came to Thessalonica, everything that was supposed to happen, happened. That is to say that they left worship of idols and came to the worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when they left all the other idols, that was highly offensive culturally. Because you see, in that culture, like our culture, it wasn't so bad to worship Jesus. What made everybody angry was that you worshipped Jesus exclusively. In other words, you just didn't add him to your list of gods. You see, in the culture in which we live, people don't get too uptight as long as we don't say Jesus is the only way. But once we say that there is salvation in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven uh, given to men by which we must be saved, as long as we don't say that, they're not that upset. It's a little weird, but they're not that upset with us. But when we make this claim of exclusivity in the sense that there's only salvation through faith in Jesus, and of course we're presupposing that human beings need to be reconciled to God because of sin, But once we say that, you see, that's the offense. And that was the offense of the day. And everyone came against them. Family, friends. And you know, we have these love lines, don't we? People we really care about. We really care about their opinion. And when the people whose opinion we really care about turn against us, that's really painful. He says you need to stand even, even there. And you need to persevere in the faith. Not just hang on. But you need to flourish. You need to flourish in the midst of that. You know, persecution can do funny things to us. You remember John the Baptist? He was John the Baptist. He was the one who the prophet Isaiah said would come. And he was the fulfillment of that. John the Baptist would be the, the one who would make uh, prepare the way of the Lord. And, and, and remember the, the angel revealed to, to, to John's father that he would come and he would come in the spirit of Elijah. And you remember John's father was struck mute until John was born and he said his name is John. And, and then he went out into the wilderness, got a little crazy. But, but then he, he uh, uh, was the one who baptized Jesus. He was the one who said, this is, is, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the, he, he saw the, the, the dove come from heaven and, 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 and anoint Jesus, this Holy Spirit dove. He heard the voice. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But you remember what happened to John when he was put in prison? He sent his disciples and he says, could you go to Jesus and ask him if he's really the one? That was John the Baptist. You heard our dear friend Jerry Bridges last Sunday say, in the midst of suffering, 
Last year was a very difficult year. Suffering, trials, persecution. Persecution by friends can be a very painful, difficult thing. And Paul knows that, so he writes to them. And he says, all right, I want you to persevere. But you are persevering, he says. I've seen it, and that's really good. And so that stands as a model for you. And this is the perseverance. He says, verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. He's saying you're standing up in the midst of this, and I see it. You're actually flourishing. Why? Because you see your faith is growing abundantly. Now, what that means is that their faith was growing off the charts, even in the midst of this persecution. During the persecution, in the context of suffering, their faith was growing off the charts. They weren't just maintaining, they weren't just hanging on by their nails, but their faith was actually growing. And you see, that's the purpose for which God ordains suffering in the lives of believers. Notice 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he says, this is what's happened. He's, he's, he's given us new life and this great hope because of Jesus. And all this then leads to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, that is you and us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we've been saved, yet this fulfillment of this salvation, the fullness of it will come. That's our hope. Then he says, in this you rejoice, and we do and we should. In this you rejoice. This is great. But then he adds this, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He says, I'm just going to be honest with you. I know what life is like. To the church in Thessaloniki, he would write, it's the persecution. To others, there's varieties of sufferings. But he says, he says, he says you rejoice in what has happened, you rejoice in what is to come, but right now, between Christ has come, space, Christ is coming again, in that space, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, and here's the purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He's saying, listen, this suffering for them, this persecution has come and its purpose is to refine, make more pure, you could say, increase your faith. Now I know 
that many times when we go through difficulties, for them persecution, that it feels like our faith is really small and even shrinking. It just feels that way. But you know what's really happening? Everything that we thought was faith in Jesus is being wiped away if it's not really faith in Jesus. You know, during good times, I feel like I'm a great man of faith. I can, poof, I can part the Red Sea. All right, I mean, hey, things are going well. Everything I touch seems to work nicely. I'm on a roll. And I think I'm trusting God, and I'm not. I'm just trusting, you know, that I can do this. Usually I stop praying somewhere midstream, you know. When difficulties come, all that faith in everything else is burned away. And I'm left with faith. And then the Lord says, all right, let's grow this. And that's what's happening, you see. That's what Paul sees. That's perseverance. Faith growing abundantly. And not only that, their love. He says, your love for one another is increasing. You see, that's, that's another one of these, these signs for Paul. You know, Paul has this great triad, this great uh, trinity of expression, if you will, uh, of, of faith, love, and hope. He writes of it all the time. 1 Corinthians 13, about you know, the great love chapter, as we call it. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these, you see. Faith, hope, and love. He writes of it time and time again. He writes of it really here again. He says, your love is increasing during this time of difficulty. And you know what happens during times of difficulties for us? What oftentimes happens during times of difficulties is we become very self-absorbed and very self-centered. That's what happens. Someone strikes against us, we build up the barricades, we get in the supplies so we can protect ourselves. And, and that may happen for a while, but you know what happens in the life of a believer after a while? That gets really unsatisfying. Living, even in the midst of pain and difficulty, gets very unsatisfying over time because we were made to love. And what happens is that because we've been hurt, our compassion for others increases. Isn't that an amazing thing? You see, hey, without the Lord, uh, our compassion doesn't increase. Our bitterness might increase. Our anger might increase. Our, our desire to be alone might increase. But, but because the Holy Spirit lives within us, when difficult times come, we become actually more compassionate as we experience difficulties in our own lives. We become to understand the human condition and the difficulties therein. And, 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 and we desire then to help. And what we find is that, that there's more joy, even in the midst of suffering, of thinking of the interests of others than thinking of the interest of ourselves. Now, sometimes we get right in the middle of that and we're so self-absorbed, in part because we need to be at times, but we're so self-absorbed that we get miserable in it. And the real solution is to love. And so we find joy in the loving. And so he says to them, your joy is increasing. That's the very purpose of God-ordained suffering. For instance, in Romans in chapter 5, we read this. The apostle writes, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, all of that's what Christ has done. We've been justified by faith. And what's going to happen? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But now, between Christ has come and Christ is coming again. But now, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, perseverance, and endurance produces character. Well, what's the character that this produces? What's the key character of the Christian? What's the key character of Christ? Love produces character. And character produces hope. You say, look, it really is true. It really is true. Even in the midst of suffering, Christ is being conformed in me. It brings hope. And this hope doesn't put us to shame because it's a work of God. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. You see, his, we receive his love. And so when you shake a Christian, what comes out? You see, and you go, oh, whew, it's really in there. And that's not proven generally when times are good. You know, if it's not inconvenient, I can do wonderful things for people. <laughs> right? It's when it's inconvenient, when it's difficult, and when it hurts, or when I'm hurting, then it really is love, isn't it? When the author of Hebrews wrote to that church, they had been a suffering church. In fact, they had taken the risk of identifying with other believers who were being persecuted. Now, you know, it's pretty risky to identify with people who are being persecuted for their faith. The reason it's risky is because then you get associated with them and then they persecute you. But they were willing to do that for one another. Notice how he puts it. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and and an abiding one. He said, listen, you you joyfully sacrificed. See, that's love. Love really, ultimately, is joyfully sacrificing. When you begrudgingly sacrifice, that's called duty or manipulation. (laughs) But when you joyfully sacrifice, that's real love. Is there a more wonderful expression than for the joy set before him? Is that not a wonderful expression of the love of Christ? for the joy set before him. Jesus didn't go to the cross kicking and screaming. He went for the joy because he knew that his father would be glorified and he said, I love you. 
and he knew that we would be saved. And he said, I love you. That's real love, you see. And, and the author of Hebrews is worried. He's worried about the now perseverance of the people in this church. Some are falling away, and they're probably falling away in the midst of relatively good times. And so he says to them, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Don't shrink back now. Keep on, you see, like you did when you were suffering. It's as if he's saying, remember the good days. Remember the good days. And so Paul says that's what it's like to persevere even in the midst of these, these great difficulties. And so he writes to them to give them hope. So verse 5 starts this hope that he's going to give them so they can continue on. And I'm just going to be able to introduce this today. I really, in my naivete, thought I would get all the way through this. But verse 5, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Well, what is evidence of what? Well, he's saying that God has made a judgment and his judgment is right. He's saying God has made a judgment about you believers. It's a righteous judgment. He's made a judgment about you believers and his judgment is right. And here's his judgment about you believers. His judgment about you believers is that you're worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. And how does he know that they're worthy of the kingdom of God for which they're suffering? He says, well, this is evidence. What's evidence? Well, the this refers to the persecution and their perseverance. In other words, he's saying to them, the fact that you're being persecuted is evidence that God's judgment about you is right, that you're really believers in Jesus. The fact that you're being persecuted, you will come and persevering through it, the fact that you're being persecuted is evidence that you're really believers in Jesus. I mean, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. The women in our church are studying the Sermon on the Mount. You'll come to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are you, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you hang around with me, if you believe in me, then you'll be persecuted. They did it to the prophets. They'll do it to you. Remember, on the night that Jesus was, when Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. And he said to them, no servant is greater than his master. They hated me. Guess what? They'll hate you. 
in, in fact, if you think about the early church and how it began, it began in great, great wonder, didn't it? On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon. 3,000 people come to faith. 3,000 people get saved. And, and it's wonderful. I mean, the people marvel and, and they gather together and these, this band of believers, 3,000 of them in Jerusalem, 3,000 of them band together and they listen to the apostles' teaching and they gather all their stuff together and they, they share with one another and, and uh, there's great power and signs and wonders and all of that as they, as they gather together. And then remember Peter and John go to the temple and there's a man who's lame and they heal him in the name of Jesus. And all the people again marvel, and Peter gets to preach again. Now, now the, the, the religious leaders get a little annoyed at them. But because the people are so in favor of what's happening, and they're so marveling at what's going on in the name of Jesus, that the religious leaders really can't do too much. They arrest Peter and John, uh, and, uh, and that's when Peter draws the line. And he says, you know, there is salvation in no one else. No other name has been given uh, among men by which we must be saved. This name, Jesus, this is the only way. And they were annoyed by that, obviously, but they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't beat them. They couldn't imprison them. Why? Because they had the favor. They had the favor of the people. And so, so then uh, after, uh, after they're, they're released, uh, uh, things continue to do well in the early church, uh, so much so that that uh, the, the, the apostles become kind of celebrities. I mean, Peter was so well known that people wanted to, to just get in his shadow, and they thought, well, then they would be they would be healed. They wanted just to just to be that close to him, and, and uh, they were meeting publicly. But don't you think somebody said? Do you remember what Jesus said? And then the apostles were arrested. But then an angel let them out. And the authorities freaked out, so they sent the captain of the guard after them, and he said, could you come back? And they did. And they began to speak of Jesus even more. And after a while, of course, they knew they couldn't imprison them, but they beat them. And you know the response of the disciples after they were were beaten was this. He says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. They did exactly what Jesus said to do. Rejoice to be counted worthy for suffering for the name. And you get the sense that they thought, yes. They could have become bitter. They could have become self-righteous. They could have said, oh, you shouldn't do this to us. And all that would have been true. At least they shouldn't have been doing that to them. But, but rather, they saw it and they said, oh, yes, this is what Jesus said. This is a mark. Yes, we really are believers in Jesus. Counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, if you're like me, as I thought through this, I thought, but you know, that's never really happened to me. I've never really been beaten for this, for the name of Christ. At least physically, as far as I know, I just haven't. Uh, there are people around the world and people throughout history who have. So we still see it, but what does that, what does that really mean for us? Well, I think it means this first, wait. Wait. See, we do live in a culture, and I'm no prophet, fortunately. 
But we do live in a culture which is against us. Well, that's not the only word we can say about our culture and our relationship with our culture. We're to love, we're to evangelize, we're to help, we're to do all of that. But the very truth of the matter is, at the core, if the Bible is true and it is, there's a division. D.A. Carson, a theologian, New Testament scholar of significant note uh, these days, good man. He shared a story about meeting with a missionary friend, and his missionary friend had been in a part of the country that, where there was great persecution against Christians. And he said, you know, Dr. Carson, you know what the difference is between where I was and where you live, meaning the U.S.? And Dr. Carson says, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, the difference is this. He says, we know that our culture is against us. You don't. But trust me, underlying it is. And so you see, just wait. I don't know what's going to happen. But there's plenty for us to practice on, obviously. We know that the culture in which we live is averse to the things of Christ. We know that any time God is raised in the context of a discussion about creation, that we can feel the frowns of people. We know that any time we begin to discuss human sexuality, whether it's gender issues or marriage issues, uh, we know that we are uh, looked upon with scowls. All you have to do, and I wouldn't advise this, but if you, if you listen to the comedians and the comics of our day and how they discuss Christianity, especially in these issues of, 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 of sexuality and so forth, you find that we're ridiculed all the time for belief in marriage as we understand the Bible to teach it and in sexuality as being moral only and right only in the context of a heterosexual relationship, marriage, if you will. We're ridiculed all the time because of that and because of other things as well, whether it's our belief in life and, and pro-life or whatever that is, whatever end of the political spectrum you're on on how these issues ought to be dealt with. These very Christian issues separate us. But you see, that isn't the the biggest part of it at all. A number of years ago, I was sitting in a meeting with a, with a, with a, with a, with a, with a man, and, and he said to me, as we discussed these various issues, and he was a believer, and he says, if my friends knew what I thought about these issues, they would think I'm crazy, as we talked about the abortion issues, we talked about sexuality issues and so forth. And I said, no, 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 that's not the half of it. You actually believe that Jesus is Lord. You actually believe that he's the bread of life. You actually believe that he's the light of the world, you see. You actually believe that he's the resurrection of the life. You have to believe that he's the good shepherd, that he's the true vine, and all of that. You believe all of that about him. In fact, you believe that there's only life in his name, that by believing in him that there's life, and that those who do not believe in him will be condemned, and those who do will be saved. You believe that. That's really it. If they knew that, that would really drive them crazy. Because that really is the line, isn't it? And so it really is true. It really does exist. Many of us know that most especially in personal friendships and relationships with people who don't hold this view, who do not believe, whether it's family, whether it's neighbors, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, whether it's classmates, whoever it happens to be, we know the pain of their frown. We know the pain of the glance. It's really real. And we know in the course of our culture, 
the course of our culture as things, in a sense, if you will, go differently than we would love. Oh, we have a great obligation and responsibility to be involved and be leavened in the midst of the culture. But the truth of the matter is, in the long run, it goes against us. It just does. And in that sense, we need not to become self-righteous. Not to say we're better than you are. Not to become bitter but to rejoice that God has counted us worthy of the kingdom, that he has placed us right here, right now, in the midst of whatever is happening in the world in which we live. And if things, policy, practice, life, culture, goes against us. Don't become bitter. Don't become angry. Don't become self-righteous. Rejoice. God's saying, see, you're worthy of the kingdom. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. God, as we live in the world in which we live, that you would enable us to persevere, to increase in faith, to increase in our love for one another. That we wouldn't become bitter, that we wouldn't become angry, that we wouldn't become self-righteous. But rather, Father, we would rejoice. Oh, yes, God, give us grace to be leavened in the world in which we live. Give us grace to bring righteousness and justice in every sphere in which we travel. But God, I pray that you would enable us any time we're sneered at, laughed at, ridiculed, ostracized, marginalized, put down, even persecuted. And we'd rejoice. Give us that grace. And Father, in the midst of our world, because sin is on this planet and in the world in which we live, we find all kinds of difficulties and trials that we face. And so we pray that we would persevere in the midst of, of disease, Father. So I pray for those who are suffering illness. We pray for Jim Van that you would bring healing to his life and bless him. For Steve Gottstein, that as he recovers from his heart surgery, that you would be with him, Father. And we pray, God, that these and others, that you would enable, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, to persevere and to increase in faith and to be those who love even more. We pray for those who suffer loss. We pray for Amy Young and the loss of her father. Father, we pray for Amy's family, uh, for Marcia and her sisters. And Father, we pray that you would bless them in such a way that they too even in the midst of this difficulty, we grow in faith and love. And for Catherine, as she grieves the loss of her mom, and Priscilla, as she grieves the loss of her dad, that you would be with them, Father, too, and you would uh, enable them to grow in faith and in love and deeply in hope. Father, for us as a church, that in the years that but before us, we pray that we may live faithfully, perseveringly, with great hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> and if I might just say this, uh, our plan, Karen and mine, our plan is to leave fairly quickly to head to Denver to go to uh, Tom Young, Amy's father's funeral uh, tomorrow. So uh, weather permitting, so I won't be able to greet at the door. I apologize deeply for that. You know, I love to do that, but uh, we'll be unable today. We just have to sort of get on with that. But I ask your prayers as we travel. Uh, but please now receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And this through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Amen.